Amen. Thank you, David. So I didn't introduce myself before. Let me do that now. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. And we began this morning in a sermon series that will take us uh, through uh, to the Lenten season, about seven weeks, I think, on Psalm 23. Uh, now, you might be aware, you might not be aware, that we are reading the Bible together as a church and as a, as a network of churches, and we're also memorizing scriptures together. And the scripture that we're memorizing here at the beginning of the, of the year, and those, those scripture memory tools and whatnot are out in the foyer of the church, the narthex or whatever we call that area back there. Uh, so grab one of those, but what we're memorizing is Psalm 23. So we're memorizing and we're preaching on Psalm 23. Uh, and so God must have some, uh, some stuff to teach us from this text. So here's what we want to do, a little bit different than normal. Uh, instead of Susan or, or someone else coming to read the scriptures to us, we're going to, for these seven weeks, recite the psalm together every week. Uh, and so I believe it'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, if not, you can look in your worship folder. It'll be there, or just open your Bible to Psalm 23. But here's what I'm going to do. This is a little unusual, so bear with me. But I'd like for us to stand uh, while we read together. So would you stand with me? And so we're reciting together to help in our scripture memory and to draw our attention to this psalm. The whole of Psalm 23, would you read it with me? A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. And so during these weeks, we're going to go basically word by word, phrase by phrase. This is unusual. We usually take large chunks of scripture, uh, but I've been looking forward to this because Psalm 23 is arguably one of the most beloved passages in the entire Bible. And I was thinking this week of the times when we tend to, to go to this psalm. We go to it for comfort in the most dire situations, don't we? At funerals, at times of great sadness, and it always seems to be there for us. So why take the time to do a series on just these six short verses? Well, it's really just a matter of personal privilege, to be honest with you. I, I want to spend these six week, or these seven weeks preaching from the psalm because, to be honest with you this morning, my heart desperately needs it. I, uh, I entered 2017 anxious and afraid and shocking, I know, for those of you who know me. And my, uh, my sinful response to, to, to my sinful fear and unbelief, I don't know what yours is, but my sinful response to my sinful fear and unbelief is to plan it away. Now, planning is good, it's wise, uh, but for me, it's also a savior, it makes me feel safe. So I'm a planner, if you didn't know that. I mean, I, I can tell you, I've, I already know, I already know the 10 or 15 things that I'm going to accomplish in 2017. I've, I've scheduled every lesson that I need to learn this year. I thought you would chuckle at that. That's, that's sarcasm. I know. I'm not, I'm not the, you know. Uh, I have an Excel spreadsheet 
I have lots of Excel spreadsheets, but one of them has all the books that I'm going to read and in what order and all these kinds of things because I'm a planner. I plan to keep control of my life, to keep it in my own hands because I do not trust my life in any other hands. Not even God's hands. Because I really believe that I've got to make things happen. Now, why is that? Well, you know, I was thinking, in 16 years of parenting, my kids, it's interesting, my kids have never once woken up in the morning and asked, are we having breakfast this morning? Not once. Instead, they say, what's for breakfast this morning? Because they know from experience that they wake up every morning into a day where every one of their needs has already been taken care of. And so they don't go to bed worried about whether there will be food for them to eat when they wake up hungry in the morning. We, the Bennett family, has a perfect breakfast record. I can report. Now, it's not always healthy and Pinterest-worthy, but we have a perfect breakfast record because, because that's my job. My job as a parent is to make sure of that. because It is traumatic. It is traumatic for kids to want for basic needs when they are still at an age where they are powerless to do anything about it. It creates insecurity that never leaves them. Childhood is meant to be an experience of worry-free dependence and trust in the strength and the love of mom and dad. Does that make sense? Childhood is supposed to be a, a worry-free dependence and trust in the strength of, and love of, of mom and dad. And we learn as children with our parents how we're to live as adults with God, that this, that same worry-free dependence and trust in God's strength and love. But I wonder, what about you? Do you, trust, do you trust him? Do you trust him with your life? Not in theory. I mean, practically, do you trust him with your life? And the way you answer that question is you start to ask things like this. Is your life full of panic? And planning, or is it like the psalm says here, green pastures and still waters? I mean, do you ever, do you ever um, worry, look ahead and at what's coming in your life and, and, and get full of worry ever? Does that ever happen to you? Come on. Tim Keller says that worry is not believing that God will get it right. Do you ever look back? Maybe last year or sometime in the past and feel regret or maybe bitterness. That regret, that bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. See, worry about the future, regret about the past, both are a failure to trust God. They stem from the belief that you know better than anyone, better than even he does how your life should go. And so the problem is that he's calling the shots and not you and your heart rebels at that idea. So do you trust God? Do you trust him with your life? Let me answer the question for you. Of course not. But you should. You should. And I should. We should. Because just like with parentless children, it is traumatic. It is psychologically damaging to feel out of control and powerless to do anything about it. Think about that. It is, it is, it is psychologically damaging to live your life feeling out of control, and to also know that you're absolutely powerless to do anything about it. It creates an insecurity that destroys lives all the time. And the only solution, the only way to be whole, is to know that life is beyond your control. It's true. 
Life is completely beyond our control for the most part. But it doesn't matter because we're in good hands. Not with all state. But with the Lord your shepherd. You're in his hands. And they're pierced hands. And you can trust them. You see, that's what Psalm 23 is all about. Psalm 23 is an, an extended argument for trusting God. It is, it, look at here, it is one piece of evidence after another. I mean, it, they just come like waves. One piece of evidence after another for why we should trust God alone with our lives. And that's faith. Faith is more than believing doctrines about God. It's trusting in God. It's putting your life in his hands and who God says he is. Not your circumstances is the magnetic charge that the arrow of your life is always pointed towards. And that's hard. Our hearts are hard. And you know how I know our hearts are hard is because the psalmist, if you look here in these verses, I count at least 15 arguments that the psalmist makes in just these six verses. 15 arguments for why we should trust God because, because our hearts are hard. And so he's having to beat the truth about who God is into our hearts. Have you, ever, have you ever tried to get a snack out of a snack machine and that little thing and you put the money in and you press the button and, zzz, and the thing gets stuck there? Does it drive you crazy? What do you do? You kick it, right? You jostle it, you shake it to, to, to break the snack loose so that it falls down and you can get it. You pound the machine and then it drops and that's the analogy. That's faith. Faith, faith is really when the truth of who God is begins to drop into your heart. And so there are arguments here. And, and all we're going to do this morning, we're going to get no further than chapter 1. So this is the first time ever in the history of the church. This is a sermon on one verse. Because there's so much here, we need to go really, really slow. And so look at verse 1 with me again. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you see the three points of your outline. There are, there are the first three arguments in the psalm for why we should put our life in God's hands and trust him. Uh, and it is because, nothing fancy here, he is, number one, the Lord. Number two, he's not only the Lord, but he's also our shepherd. And if he is both the Lord and our shepherd, then it is true that we shall never lack for anything. So those are the three points of our outline, the three pieces of evidence that we want to meditate on this morning together. And so let's just work through this briefly together this morning. First, with this first piece of evidence for trusting that God, uh, God with our lives, and it is just this, that he is called here the Lord. This is how the psalm begins. Look there, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. If you look carefully in your Bible, you'll notice that the word Lord is all caps. That is because it's an English translation of the great Old Testament personal name for God, Yahweh. Uh, and God made his name known first to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And if you remember the story there in Exodus 3, Moses was ironically shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law in the middle of the desert. And all of a sudden God was there. He had an encounter with God and the scene was the call of Moses to be God's spokesman and the deliverer of his people from slavery in Egypt. And it was an, an unwanted and overwhelming task, you re might remember. And so Moses there is full of reasons why it was a bad idea. He's unqualified and so forth. And so he, is, he was hesitant and he was afraid. But Exodus 3 is also the story of Moses' conversion. There is an indication that he believed in God before the scene at the burning bush, but it was there that he began to believe God. And that's, see, there's a difference between believing in God and believing him. Moses put his life in God's hands and said yes to his call. 
And in the middle of his wrestling and doubting, he asks this question in the text. He says, "Why?" This is my trans. This is kind of my, you know, my words. But but basically, the question is this: Why should I trust you? Why? Give me a reason why I should put my life in your hands and do what you're asking of me. And the answer God gave him was the name. Why, Moses? You want to know why? Because I am the Lord. Now, the name is a form of a Hebrew verb, which is to be. It means that God has no beginning, no end. That God has no other cause. That he depends on nothing for existence outside of himself. But that everything exists and depends upon him. The name means that there is no wanting in God. There is no need that must be filled. He is the fuel that we are made to burn. We need him the way a car needs gas to run. But he doesn't need us. I mean, Santa's sleigh an elf may need Christmas spirit to power it, but all God needs, he finds in himself. That's what the name means. Notice his name is not, I am what you want. The name is, I am that I am. James Boyce, in his commentary on the Psalms, sums up the lesson of the name really better than anybody that I've found by saying that it means that God is inexhaustible. Think about that for a minute. That God never runs out of power. That he never runs out of love or patience or kindness. Isn't that good news? The burning bush, uh, the burning bush there is, is an illustration of, of who God is. God is a fire that does not consume. You remember the bush was, a, was on fire but not consumed. And that's why you should trust him because he has an unending supply of power and wisdom and love and goodness, but listen, and no need. Let me say that again. He has an unending supply of power and love and goodness and wisdom and no need, which means that he does not use his power and authority and love and goodness to take care of himself or to take and to seize from others, but instead to give and to bless. Uncle Screwtape unashamedly revealed to us that it is the nature of evil to want to consume, to suck in and absorb everything around it because the core of evil is emptiness that is trying to be filled. But God's core is not emptiness, it's fullness. So he is constantly overflowing. God's very self is found in giving, not taking. He is the fountain of goodness, of never-ending supply, and that's why you should trust him. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is his name, notice. It's not a title, it's his name, and that's significant too. I have a friend who is a pastor, and he worked with a senior pastor that everybody in the church called Preacher. <laughs> he was never called by his name, just by his title, even his wife, which is kind of weird. His wife would refer to him as Preacher. I was talking to Preacher the other day. Preacher would like, please don't ever do that to me. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I giggle because it's strange. It's strange, isn't it, to think? But God, the Lord, is not a title, it's a name, and a name is way better because a name is an invitation to relationship and intimacy. A title is just a way to keep distant from everybody. 
But not only is it a name, consider this, Yahweh's name is his covenant name. It is the name by which he makes himself known as he binds himself to his people. And his covenant is his pledge to be all that he is for or towards certain people. So here's the thing, his inexhaustible greatness goes out, but not generally. It always goes out specifically towards a people, towards a flock. And so the psalmist elsewhere sings, Come, let us worship the Lord. Let us bow down and kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. That's the language of covenant. He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. And so we come to the second piece of evidence that God, the Lord, this inexhaustibly great and generous, overflowing, outward-moving God is also my shepherd. You see that there, verse 1? The Lord is my shepherd. And this is God's referred to as a shepherd in many places in the scriptures, in the Psalms, but also Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, Zechariah 10, and elsewhere in the Old Testament as well as the New. But what does the shepherd image mean? Well, the first thing is that the job of, of shepherding was given to the lowest ranking member of the family, usually the youngest son. It was the work that no one else wanted to do. It was it was cleaning the toilets if you work at Publix. It's the low man on the pole kind of job. And shepherds, shepherds, another way of putting it, shepherds were the carnies of their day, you might say. They were looked at with great suspicion, low rung on the ladder. And so shepherd, the job, the work communicates humility and nearness. The shepherd lived with his sheep. It was a 24-7 job. God is a shepherd. He's humble. He's near to us. But it also communicates attention and care. Look, I'm reading this little book written by a shepherd in the Lake District in northern England. It's really great. It's full of insights into the job of a shepherd. And my favorite line throughout the whole book is he just, he kind of says it in passing, but man, it, it just leapt off the page to me. He says, it is my job. He's a shepherd. He says, it is my job to fret about my sheep. So the shepherd frets over the sheep. But here's what that means. It means sheep need to be fretted over. They have very small brains and no natural defenses. <laughs> Think about that combination. Very small brains, no natural defenses. They require constant attention. They are always wandering off and getting lost or getting into trouble and the shepherd's job is to look after the sheep and to keep them from danger. When the storm clouds roll in, he goes and brings the sheep out of the pasture and into the barn where they'll be warm and safe. When parasites begin to bother them, he doctors them up and charts their recovery. He cultivates pastures for them to graze in and harvests hay for them to eat in the winter. His whole life, 24-7, his whole life is one of attention and care for his sheep. And here's the teaching the great God of the universe who flung stars into existence stoops to take care of you and me like that. Now, there are a few practical lessons here before we move on to the third point. First, if God is our shepherd, then what does that mean we are? Uh-oh. Remember that whole small brains, no natural defenses thing? We need to be fretted over because we can't take care of ourselves. That's rather insulting, isn't it? Anybody else? We don't like to think of ourselves that way, but it is what the Bible teaches. You need a shepherd. I wonder if you know that. You need a caretaker who will provide for you and lead you 
and defend you, which means for every one of us in this room, our welfare is ultimately out of our hands. Isn't that unsettling? It's a little scary. It's a little insulting. Philip Keller, who is the author of a popular book called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. So he was a shepherd who was also kind of a pastor and, and did some work in Psalm 23. It's really great. He described the sheep on the farm next to his own ranch. Uh, and he said their owner was, was indifferent and inattentive, and so he neglected the land. There wasn't enough grass for the sheep to eat. Uh, they had not the only polluted, muddy water to drink. He left them out in snowstorms uh, instead of bringing them in. He didn't pay attention to, to the sheep, and so they were ravaged by dogs and wolves and mangled, and many of them died. And, and he said he, he pictured them lining, it was funny, he pictured them lining the fence line between their properties, just looking at him like, can I come please be on your farm instead of the one I'm on? He said they were, they were fatigued and, and weak and diseased, a pathetic sight. And he goes on to say, he says, I never looked at those poor sheep without an acute awareness that this was a precise picture of those wretched old taskmasters, sin and Satan, on their derelict ranch, scoffing at the plight of those within their power. Listen to this. These were great words. He says, I have become increasingly aware of one thing. It is the boss, the master in people's lives who makes the difference in their destiny. Who is your master? The psalmist saying, David sings, the Lord is my shepherd. And the point is that God is not like the shepherds in Philip Keller's story who paid no attention to his sheep. You want to know what kind of shepherd he is? Listen to Jesus' words in John 10. We're going to come back to this over and over again where he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I'm known by my sheep and I lay down my life for the sheep. In other words, every other master will leave you like the sheep in Philip Keller's story, ragged and worn out. But Jesus is the good shepherd who knows how to care for his sheep. Listen to Keller's words again. He says he's on the job 24-7. He sees that his sheep are properly provided for in every detail. He will go to no end of trouble to supply for them with the finest pastures, ample winter feed and clean water. He will spare himself no pains to provide shelter from storms, protection from ruthless enemies, and the diseases and the parasites to which they are so susceptible because he has no greater reward, no deeper satisfaction than seeing his sheep contented, well-fed, safe, and flourishing under his care. Indeed, this is his very life, the Bible says. Do you believe that? Do you trust him? Will you let him lead you? Do you know how you can be sure of everything that I'm saying to you this morning, of, that he will do all of that for you? The way you can be sure that he will do all of that is you have to know that he has already given his life on the cross to rescue you from sin and Satan. Every other master demands your life for theirs, not Jesus Christ. He is the only master that gave his life for yours. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Will you put, his, will you put your life in his hands? You should. I'm talking to my own heart here too. So God is the Lord, and he is my shepherd. He is both inexhaustible greatness and endearing goodness. And that's important because if God were only great and not good, then he would be no different than the other ancient gods. The ancient peoples feared their gods. Uh, they served their gods, but they didn't trust their gods because the gods were capricious and fickle. I mean, they got angry for silly reasons. They got 
They got bored lounging on their couches in heaven and screwed up people's lives just for kicks all the time. And if God were all powerful but not all good, you should fear him. You should serve him, but you shouldn't trust him. No way. But if he were, if he were only good and not great, if he were all goodness but not all powerful, then you could be confident that he cared for you, sure. But, man, he wouldn't be much help when you got into trouble, would he? What good is a God like that when your life is falling apart, when you need somebody to come and rescue you? I mean, C.S. Lewis was onto something when he described Aslan the lion as not safe. But what? But good. The Lord is my shepherd, David sings. In other words, he has the heart to fret over my life. And I suppose he would if he didn't also have the power to meet my every need and make his fretting, and by the way, my fretting, a silly thing. He would fret over my life if he needed to. But he doesn't. So we come to the third piece of evidence for trusting God, if he is both inexhaustible greatness and endearing goodness, all powerful and all love, then verse one, we shall not want. We lack for nothing. That's the truth. Okay, this is, this is I'm, train, I'm, I'm still training you guys. We lack for nothing. And you say, because what does amen mean? Yes, that's true. But the fact, that, the fact that there wasn't an amen on your lips there leads me to, to know that you're just like me. That you don't believe that's true. That your heart is still reaching out wrestling for the truth of that statement. Because it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it all the time, does it? But if the Lord is your shepherd, then the truth is that you are never in want. Now what does that mean? And we have to answer that question because we are part of a culture that specializes in taking and marketing, marketing wants... And then turning them into needs and then selling the solution. So does it mean when we read here that we shall not be in want, that we will never go without? No, of course not. It does not mean that God's answer to our every prayer, no matter what it is, is yes. It's something far more wonderful than that. John Newton, the, the, the man who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he put it this way. And this is so just, you need to write this down, I promise. And particularly because it's not my words, it's somebody who's far, um, a far better thinker and preacher than I am. But he said, here's what this phrase means. It means that everything is needful that he sends. And nothing is needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing is needful that he withholds. And I can't think of a better summary. So the teaching is this, that all things come from God. And so if God sends something into your life, no matter what it is, it is because you have a need and the thing that he has sent is meeting that need. Every time. And if you ask for something and he says no, it's because there's something better that he intends to give you that you didn't even think to ask for. So what are you going through right now? It may be hard. But I wonder, do you know, it's exactly what you need. I'm not discounting how hard things can be, but it is exactly what you need. And when that truth, see, when that truth drops down into your heart, like the candy in the machine, you'll start to get an idea of what Paul meant that we read a few minutes ago when he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I mean, that wasn't just talk. Paul wrote that, that, that 
sentence from prison. He was in prison. And so his secret was not that things will always go your way because you're a Christian. That's not what I, I shall not be in what means. Paul's secret was that if you know that God the Lord is your shepherd, you can be not wanting even in want. Can you imagine that? To be not wanting even in want? I mean, it was a time of need, not abundance for Paul. Yet look, he says, I, not that I'm speaking, verse 11, of being in need. Paul says, I'm in prison. Okay, good day, bad day, where does that rank? It's a pretty bad day. Probably worse day than 95% of us in the room have ever experienced. And yet, there's no self-pity. He says, not that I'm talking about being in need. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I have everything I need. Wait, you're in prison. I have everything I need. So there's want. There's want. There's a want of freedom. There's a want of food and clothing and, and comfort because prison wasn't then like it is now. Uh, there's all kinds of want that Paul's experiencing, but even in want, Paul says, I'm not wanting. Because he knew this lesson, that he who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God alone. He who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God alone. So let me just apply. Let me apply it for just a minute, and then we're going to come to the table. First, uh, to talk about sin for just a minute. Sin according to Christian theology, is acting apart from God. It's trying to find a happiness that doesn't include God. But why do we do that? Think about that. Why is it that we're so intent on living this way? It's because we still believe the ancient lie that in, in the abundance of the garden, in Genesis 3, the man and the woman, uh, and it's really remarkable, in the abundance of the garden, the man and the woman believed that there was something that God was withholding from them. And so with every need met... Truly, with every need met, they still felt not full, but wanting. With every need met, they felt as if they were still lacking. And so they reached out to grasp a hold of what they felt they needed. And it's a perfect description of our lives. We act apart from God. We disobey his commands or we obey them, not to get him, but to keep him at bay. And it's always from a place of wanting it always happens from a place of wanting. Years ago, so many years, in fact, that I tried to remember this morning, but I can't remember the culprit, uh, which is good for their sake. Our kids got uh, a roll of the bubble tape. You ever seen the bubble tape bubble gum? It comes in a big roll like this in their stockings at Christmas time. So on the way to church one morning, someone was smart enough. It's always trouble when you have multiple kids and one of them is smart enough to bring something like that and everybody else forgets to bring it. So crisis in the car. Uh, and so, um, so pretty soon, pretty soon there's commotion in the back of the car. And upon investigation, we discovered that one child was begging for just a little piece of the bubble gum from his or her sibling, while the other child has literally, I'm, I'm prone to make exaggeration, but literally has stuffed just about the entire roll of gum in their mouth until they're dangerously close to choking on the bubble gum. And it was a great lesson. We didn't even have to go to church that morning. It was a great lesson for dad, and hopefully for the child, too. And when we asked why he or she did this, the answer was, listen to this, the answer was, there, there was not very much gum. <laughs> and I was afraid I would run out, and I wanted it all for myself. And it was like looking in a mirror. 
where, where do selfishness and greed come from? There was not very much. I was afraid I was going to run out. What kind of trouble does that get us into? If you dig into your life, in the places of your greatest struggle, you'll find your heart saying something like that. But instead, look, instead the psalm says, God is great. He is the Lord. His heart, is for, his heart for us is great. He is our shepherd. He is always able to do for us whatever we need for him to do. And he is always willing to do for us whatever we need for him to do. And therefore, whether we find ourselves, wherever we find ourselves, in whatever circumstances we are in, whether in abundance or need, we can be content. This is the condition described at the end of the first verse here. Not good circumstances all the time, but listen, but the spiritual power in your inner life affected by the truth of who God is to be completely unaffected by your circumstances. Can I say that again? The spiritual power in your life, in your inner life, affected by the truth of who God is to be completely unaffected by your circumstances. For there to be no connection whatsoever between what's going on around you and what's happening in you. Paul's inner life, we're being told, was not being shaped by his external circumstances. In fact, his external circumstances began to be shaped by his internal peace, joy, and confidence. The, the hard things that he had to endure didn't have the power to change his internal frame. And instead, the joy and peace that he experienced internally had the power to begin to change his circumstances. I mean, do you understand the, the significance of that? Can you imagine that kind of power at work in you and then through you? It's why he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Now, Tim Tebow puts that on his little thing to, to say that he's going to win the football game. That's not what it means at all. It, 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 means, it means that you can be in want and not wanting. And if you can be in want and not wanting, then can I get, you can do anything. You can stop working so hard to keep all the balls in the air and sit down for a bit and take a break. And for some of you, that would be the biggest victory in your life of the past 20 years. You can walk through any shadowy valley and not be afraid. You can feast in the presence of your enemies. You can tirelessly give yourself away in love for God and others and still be overflowing. You can live haunted by, not by insecurity and fear, but haunted by goodness and mercy all the days of your life. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being haunted by goodness and mercy? Can you imagine what a life like that would look like? You know, I, um, in response to the bubble tape incident in the back of the car, I bought the child in question a year's supply of bubble tape and, like, dumped it out on their bed so that they would learn the lesson. What's the lesson? You have a father who will take care of you. You're not on your own. You'll never run out. There will always be enough. Because that is the antidote to sin's power. That is the antidote to sin's power to know you'll never run out. There will always be enough. The Lord, the inexhaustible great one in heaven is your shepherd who stooped to care for you. To know that is the antidote to sin's power. And it's exactly what Psalm 23 does. The king of love my shepherd is, the, hymn, the hymnist wrote, Whose goodness faileth never, I nothing lack if I am his.
and he is mine forever. Let's pray. So, Father, as we come to your table now, at which we see the body of Christ, our Savior, broken for us and his blood shed for us, would you, would you come and beat the truth of that into our stubborn hearts? Strengthen and sustain us in this wilderness wandering that, that you have given us in this world until we come to our heavenly home with this food and this drink that we so desperately need because our hearts, our hearts flail against, against the idea of living under your authority and control. We, we, we still think our lives are better off in our hands. How foolish can we be? And yet it seems to be something we can't overcome. And so would you come? And as you promised to do when we gather around this table, would you convince and win our, our stubborn, wandering hearts to the truth of your greatness and the truth of your love for us so that we might be people who give our lives to you, that you might be glorified in us in everything that we do, that all the glory might go to you. Lives of a believing life, a life of radical faith and trust in you, and therefore full of good works that bring glory to your name. That is what you want from us, and it's what we want too. But we need you to do this work in us, and so we ask and plead that you come and do it now, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, go from this place today in the full knowledge that the great Lord of heaven and earth is your shepherd. Uh, and if you ever doubt his heart, hear these words yet again. Because of the hardness of our heart, the liturgy of the service is filled with, with reminder after reminder after reminder of his great love for us. And so, hear these words uh, in the benediction this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace that you might lie down on green pastures both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.